Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rumor Flies. I'm Ryan. I'm Josh. I'm Greg. And today we have another good episode for you. It's a little bit different than usual, but we think everybody's going to like it. Before we get into anything, we just want to go ahead and do our little Dark Myths plug, and that is going to be Sam Davis's Inward Empire. It is, we've mentioned it before, but once again, it's worth mentioning. It is an alternate look at American history from the perspectives, I guess, the mindsets of people of the time. It's more of a psychological aspect to certain very important time points in American history as it progresses, such as like the Civil War, the Reconstruction, and even before that too. But it's more of, instead of going from the broad view, it gets really into why people were doing this from the perspective of the everyday person. Uh, definitely worth checking out. I've listened to a few episodes and I like it. Josh, you... It does a really good job of focusing on those things that you would find in your history class, but it, it focuses on, like Ryan said, like the everyday man perspective and just just things that you normally wouldn't get out of a regular history podcast. Yes. So now that we have that taken care of, we can go ahead and introduce the episode. Today we are going to be talking about fairy tales, and this is going to be extremely interesting because, A, we have a guest here today, but B, because it's going to be one of those things where... Maybe she'll say we're wrong, but I feel Probably. like it's very hard to confirm a right or wrong on this because of the way fairy tales work. And once again, I might be eating crow on this one, but <laughs> our guest is Claire Testoni from a fellow Dark Myths podcast called uh, Singing Bones. And hello, Claire. How you doing? I'm well, thanks. How are you guys? Great. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. It's it is there is no right and wrong with fairy tales, but um, there is the traditional and the very hastily recently added in the past, like sixty to one hundred years. And I right. think there's a big difference between the two. And hopefully, we'll be covering that a good bit. So, <laughs> before we get into any of the topics, Claire, uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast. I've listened to. Uh, plenty of episodes is very charming uh from what i would describe it as it would be a podcast mainly concerning fairy tales with a heavy emphasis on the point of view of the women and girls in the fairy tales or from the female perspective of it uh of course it's not always the case but it seems to be a recurring theme in there is that, would you say something like that you're better at describing your own podcast than i am <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not it's actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it examines the history of fairy tales and the history of fairy tales is often feminine. Um, but I, uh, you might not have listened to the Jack and the Beanstalk one then because I bemoan the fact that we've lost a lot of the male fairy tales. Like, um, it's a real shame that, um, that we don't have the ones that had the more, the strong male leads. Yeah. I will admit Jack and the Beanstalk no, uh, is one of the ones that I have not listened to yet. But um, I, I'm one of those guys that if I know it's not like a serial podcast where it's like you need to listen to the episode sequentially, I admittedly just skip around like, which one am I most interested in? And I go to this one or that one or that one. So I will have to listen to that one. Um, but I'm glad you corrected me on that because uh, I, I love no, it. It's, I it's think charming. It's, a fair, it's great. Fair, yeah, I, I'm, I'm planning an episode just about dragon slayers at the moment and I'm interviewing a Prince Charming from Texas. So that'll be interesting. Um, oh. <laughs> but um, I think it, it does I do end up focusing on women because women are often the lead and because women were often the people who collected the fairy tales. Um, but it's because fairy tales were considered for a long time like women's work, um, which is unfair. I think it, that, that means that 
you know, I, I, yeah, I think it's just the way it, it ends up being. Um, but no, I just try and focus on the history from where this t- tale started and I try and leave it with the impact of, of where it sits in popular culture today. Right. Yeah. So it's a consequential thing, really, that it's just what it is at that point. So, yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I guess a little primer on fairy tales. We're going to leave it to you to help with this. Um, for us and the listeners, what would you really consider to be the differences between something like a fairy tale, a myth, and straight-up folklore? The way I understand it is, like, fairy tale is almost a subcategory of folklore uh, to a certain degree. I don't know. Myth is way over and can be differentiated, but what would you consider to be a fairy tale in its true essence? Well, a fairy tale is a standalone story. So myths and legends, it's normally several stories about one character, someone like Robin Hood or King Arthur. There's lots of stories about one character. Um, A fairy tale stands alone and it normally has magic um, or transformation in it. So um, it doesn't tend to have uh, some other you know, it it tends to have a fairy, it tends to have a transformation or, um, you know, a magical curse that's broken. Um, uh, Otherwise, it tends to be uh, uh, more folklore. So you have folklore about people who may have existed or lived, but if there's no magic in it, it's not a fairy tale generally. And a myth um, tends to be um, something that doesn't have a story attached to it, is an idea, is is a thought. So say the Greek gods um, or the or the Viking gods, the Norse gods, you know, they there are lots of stories about them, um, but it's more the idea of the figures than it is uh, a short narrative. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it does. I think like uh, pretty much fairy tales and folklore are kind of more ingrained, but myths, it's just they can kind of be tweaked a little bit more depending on the culture who adopts it or who's writing it seems like myths have a much wider range of who's writing it at that point especially with like the gods and everything like you know you'll have a guy writing two three hundred years later about a certain god doing something terrible to his wife or whoever else um, <laughs> yeah. so uh, it, yeah it's one of those you think deals. of like those ones as kind of like the comic book superhero franchises you know oh, don't like they oh. <laughs> you know I try it's that kind of stuff and it's just so I, I'm out of it at this point. Every character is not the same character. It's it's a cool improvement. It's this, the just... universe, yeah. And as and as like the laws are all broken, you're like, no, we shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like this. But um, uh, because they are mythic, <laughs> they yeah. are the like Greek myths of today, yeah. And don't be uh, confused. We have modern myths today, I guess. And I think comic books are a good way to describe that. It's our modern myths almost. But, totally, um... I think so too. But with the folklore stuff, like I I also collect um non-fairy tale folklore um but i don't do a podcast on it um and they tend to be more ghost stories or um uh, urban legends myths about a place um rather than uh, a story that can be transposed to any location i think that's it's not always a difference but can be certainly yeah i like that that's that's pretty cool i mean it's more i guess folklore has a lot more spoken word if anything than fairy tales so okay and especially you being from Australia, I assume you have a lot of spoken word uh, folklores around there at some point, huh? Yeah, well, we don't have fairy tales, really. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I made sure uh, I'd say fairy tales. <laughs> I think they missed the boat on have, the time period for that one. Yep, yeah, unfortunately, you know, European, well, uh, European civilization came uh 
later and science followed pretty soon after so there wasn't much chance to um to really develop much folklore but there's certainly lots of bunyips and ghost stories and drop bears drop and bears yeah. say whatever you want wait was the gimpy plant from australia yeah it was is it oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. that's dark yeah. Make that's dark plants. magic that's a fairy tale that's real okay i look i looked up that <laughs> look i don't believe in the gimpy plant but i believe in drop bears <laughs> um the so, greatest trick they ever pulled was making you believe they didn't exist. Now, uh, I don't think that's how that goes. Now that we've had that differentiation between the three, uh, we're going to go ahead and give our little caveat on our side. Um, Claire, as you may know, Josh and I, and tangentially Greg, because he's been around us so much, have a very big love-hate relationship, mostly love, with uh, Disney. And it is not a coincidence that a lot of these topics that we might be covering tonight are going to have some connection with Disney, but it's because Disney tries to grab every single fairy tale and folklore they can that they can get the rights to and change it to whatever way they see fit. So, yes, there is a Disney connection here, and we're going to be mentioning it. But Claire is here to tell us why Disney, once again, is full of shit. So, uh... <laughs> Well, not necessarily full of shit, but, yeah, certainly um, the difference between... I think, you know... I mean, not to uh, make fun of you Americans, but um, uh, oh, I find okay. that you Americans. Americans okay. <laughs> but it's, I think because, you know, Disney is American, um, you guys and you guys tend to experience all fairy tales through Disney. It's hard for people to separate Disney and fairy tales um, from each other because they're not the same thing. Yeah. Well, as you'll see, fairy tales can be quite depressing towards the end, but we you know we're from America and we had wars to win. We like to keep it happy over here. All right. <laughs> yeah. Keep a dream is a wish propaganda. your heart makes. It's very upbeat. <laughs> um, so with that little bit said, uh, Josh is going to take over for the first subject. So today I'm going to be talking about Sleeping Beauty. And this was, you know, quite fascinating to me because Sleeping Beauty was one of the first movies that Walt Disney uh, had, you know, as a feature film after Snow White. And as a um, my own personal opinion, I fucking hate Sleeping Beauty. I hate the movie. I think it's terrible. Really? I can't stand it. I've tried watching it again and I just turn it off. Well, we've already talked about the dwarves and everything, you know, clearly the seven stages of cocaine. Well, that, well, that's Snow White. I hate Sleeping Beauty, though. See, I just, I'm that off of this. I, I you know. Anyway, they both slept through half the movie. Why should we stay awake? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. But one of the things about the animation, it's so beautiful. The animation's oh, gorgeous. It, it is. It's really it's pioneering. A very gorgeous. Yes. Beautiful yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, it was revolutionary for its time. And, you know, I really appreciate, you know, what it, it laid the foundation for. But just from, you know, this. 15 second ADHD, you know, millennial of today. I can't sit there and watch it because it just it's boring. And I and I feel bad for saying that. Well, you but couldn't watch 2001, so I hey, I love 2001. I gave it another chance. I've given Sleeping Beauty multiple chances, but This guy doesn't like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I just outed you. I I said I liked it. That's shocking. No, I I watched it <laughs> again and I liked it. Anyway, moving on before you throw me under the bus, Ryan. The thing that I, I didn't realize about Sleeping Beauty was that it came from two separate versions that eventually kind of was condensed into one. And I mean, obviously Disney put its own spin on it, but there was two just vastly different versions that was combined together to get, you know, one particular thing. And even two separate versions is kind of a, is kind of a stretch because there's, there's two parts to the story um, for Peralt's ver Am I saying that right? Peralt? Perot. Perot. Okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> 
That's my American coming Silent out. Silent Yeah. <laughs> um, Perot, in Perot's version, there was, if, if I believe I'm correct in saying that, there was two separate parts to the story, and they actually believed that it was two separate stories they combined into one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and, and if you look... No, go ahead, go yeah, ahead, I'm sorry. And no, no, um, it's, yeah, Charles Perrault's version, uh, 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 what is it, La Belle du Mont de Bois, like the Sleeping Beauty in the Woods. Um, yep, that's it. It's, um, uh, it, it is like the first act is the Sleeping Beauty we know and the second act is this whole other thing where she's with the prince and he has to hide her because his mother's an ogre who wants to eat her and yeah. her children. And it's, um, it's very gruesome and very murderous. It's like, it's like Shrek had a baby with, with Sleeping Beauty. Like that's the second half of the fairy tale. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that one I mean, comes the- from like a, there are Italian ones. I don't know if you read The Sun, the Moon, and Talia, which yep. is like a Gambasta Basile one. And that's when it gets tied back to the other Sleeping Maiden ones, the Snow White stories. Um, and yeah, but it, it definitely evolved out of the Sleeping Maiden story w- from which you get Snow White. And also this other one of Please Don't Eat My Wife ogre mother <laughs> and yeah they are kind of <laughs> smooshed together and maidens and towers is a whole theme into itself that you get rapunzel from and others from so yeah sleeping beauty is like a hybrid um as we know it yeah that's that's what i wanted to get to is that there, you can definitely see that there's a lot of foundation where a lot of different fairy tales come from this one story and mm. and the thing that i found so interesting was that you know, not only are there different versions out there, is that the versions themselves are so vastly different. Like one of them included seven fairies uh, who were the the godmother to the child who fell asleep for a hundred years, uh, and, and in the other one, it gets uh, the, the the Talia one. That's the one that gets super rapey. <laughs> oh well, yeah. Even Charles Perrault's ones, like I, I, yeah. One of the biggest things I think, uh, no one ever wakes up with a kiss in fairy tales. Fairy no. tales. Never like it never gets solved with a kiss. And in Sleeping Beauty, she does not wake up with a kiss. In uh, some versions, uh, she wakes up uh, giving birth because she's been raped in her sleep by Prince Charming, and yep. um, and she wakes up during labor. Um, and it's like, oh, I guess I've, you know it's been a hundred years, and now I'm giving birth. Um, but uh, and deal. in some versions, she wakes up when the child is actually suckling at her breasts. Yeah. So uh, it's it's never um, it's never a lovely kiss. And in like Snow White, it, she doesn't get kissed awake because the apple gets dislodged from her throat. Right. Um, and and so you know when the the prince comes by, sees her in a glass coffin, and goes, "I'd like that hanging in my house. That looks very nice." Ugh. And as the dwarves loaded onto his carriage, <laughs> she gets bumped, and the apple gets dislodged from her throat. He never kissed her awake. Well, the, yeah. Just going back to what you said, <laughs> Happy like accidents. Yeah, one of the <laughs> yes. versions that that I read was that she actually wakes up. Well, first off, so she's she's knocked out. This this king walks by, and he finds you know th- this abandoned um, castle where she's at, and he tries to wake her up, and he's so distraught that she's not waking up. He decides the best solution is to sleep with her. Yeah. Don't, That's pretty much it. Don't quite know how those two kind of intermingle with one another, but you know, okay, it's certainly I, not charming. That's yeah, for exactly. Sure. <laughs> but, but it actually says that um, you know she she becomes pregnant from this and gives birth to to twins, and the reason she actually wakes up is because the child is actually sucking the poison 
uh, that was that was inside of her, and that's why she ends up waking up. And then yes. she's like, "Oh, Sometimes I have they two suckle at her f- finger. Yeah, her and finger. They suckle yeah. the yeah, the they, they suckle the poison out. But it's it's the the it's never a good ending. It's never the the nice one we're used to. I mean, the Disney version was really heavily inspired by the ballet by Tchaikovsky. Yeah. So Tchaikovsky had already come in, cleaned it up. He turned it into this very romantic tale. Um, he made the uh, the prince and Aurora, he named her Aurora, and he had her, he had the meeting beforehand. Tchaikovsky was a real romantic, and he added in more plot, created um, uh, a marriage dance at the end where it's clear she's happy, this is all happening. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, it's not all Walt Disney trying to make it happy families. The Russians had gotten there first <laughs> and, and cleaned it up. Well, yeah. that, that's one of my, my own personal... Uh, uh, annoyances with people is when they call her Sleeping Beauty as the princess. It's like, no, her name's Aurora. You know, the movie yeah. is Sleeping Beauty. Her name's Aurora. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the well, the, the thing is, is like that uh, um, about the Italian version in particular that I, I was reading about was that you have this whole rapey thing that goes along, and but you come to find out that the king who fathered these two illegitimate children already has a wife, and. She's not having it, which you can kind of understand, like, you know, my husband now, you know, had an affair, whatever. Um, but so the queen has this evil plot to to, to kill the kids and, and to, to kill Aurora um, and she ends up dying and then they get married. But you still get your happily ever after because now Aurora has a king and she has, you know, her two uh, her two kids with her. And to me, I guess just my thought process is like you have this roller coaster of ups and downs of a very questionable behavior, but you make sure that at the end of the day, there's still that happy ending for everyone to teach them a lesson. Except for the queen. Yeah. Except, except for the queen. Yeah. <laughs> the whole killing It's a little Game of Thrones though, isn't it? Like that story. It's a lot more exciting. There's a lot more intrigue going on. You know, I for one am more invested in Sleeping Beauty as a secret mistress. Like that's just much more exciting <laughs> to me than like, oh, we lived happily ever after, you know? <laughs> well, I think that that's an interesting thing you bring up though, is that, um, you have these Disney versions, which, you know, are very clean and uh, very accessible by everyone. But I, I would imagine that they have these like these roller coaster of emotions and all these different things is because, I mean, it makes these fairy tales more entertaining. And, yeah. you know, the, the, a big part of of these fairy tales is passing it down orally from, you know, one generation to the next. And so, you know, I'm sure people add their own flair, you know, their own, um, you know, input into it. But that's what I'd have to imagine is that people want to make it more exciting because nobody wants to hear the same bedtime story of some damsel in distress getting rescued, getting kissed on the lips, getting married, the end. Totally. And I mean, Charles Perrault, he he took his stories from... uh, collection of educated young ladies who used to meet. It was quite a fashionable thing in the court of the Sun King to meet up and talk about fairy tales. And there was a group of women called uh, Le Precious, which was the Precious, and they would meet and exchange fairy tales. um, And and they made it quite a cool thing to do. And so often they would stretch them out. You'd tell half a tale one time and half a tale the, like the next time you guys met, you know. And so that that means you end up with more acts, more more divisions right. that we have smoothed out in a lot of adaptations. <laughs> more chapters, yeah. It was like a yeah. book club from back in the day. 
Totally, totally. <laughs> and it was opera. considered okay because women weren't, like, meant to read proper books wow. or, you know, do or write proper novels. Right. Um, but fairy tales were fine for women. Um, yeah. And Charles Perrault actually had a really weird job. His job was to write, in the court of uh, Louis Fourteenth, was to write the captions on monuments, to write composed poems that say, like, this building stands because, like, his his job was to be the guy who writes tweets essentially <laughs> Louis the 14th had a job for everybody it was ridiculous yes. like our our state exists because of that guy so I mean that, <laughs> yeah. it's ridiculous so uh, we have Sleeping Beauty we have the first part which we will very know very well and then we have the uh, please don't eat my wife ogre mom side of it so my sometimes quest- current wife yeah. <laughs> sometimes current wife not yeah. mom oh. but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so- yeah same deal <laughs> My question is, a lot of these fairy tales seem to have had this um, kind of cautionary story type of uh, theme to them, or at least teaching some sort of lesson to the person hearing it, to like either a young girl or a young boy that's listening to the story. What would you take off from the please don't eat my, uh, my wife mom deal? Uh, what would be the takeaway from that one? Why was that added to it? Moral of the story. Well, Perot, because he loved a short little witty thing at the end of everything, he would put little morals at the end that would rhyme. Um, I can't remember what the Sleeping Beauty one was, but it was essentially, um, it was about not trying to fight fate. As the king gets rid of all the spinning wheels to try and stop her from falling asleep. But it's, it's, and it's also about not being rude to your guests. So, um... It's, it's this long, long drama that gets created from the simple fact that he snubbed a woman that should have been at her, um, at her, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Christening and, um, and, and never disap- A lot of fairy tales could be saved if you just didn't upset fairies that, that, you know, like Greek myths, it's like, don't upset the gods. Fairy tales, just don't piss off a fairy and you'll be fine. It seems like the fairies are pissed off a lot easier than the gods most of the time, though. Like, you just, like, don't say (laughs) hi to them when you're crossing the street or something and then they will put a curse on you for seven years. What the gods do is they'll they'll come in in the form of somebody or take over somebody, right. show up asking for something, and then you say no, and then you inadvertently have snubbed a god. The gods are so jealous. The gods are, yeah, they're like, they're really like pernicious about it. Like Gods <laughs> are jealous, fairies are spiteful. Just, they yes, always have bad days. that's very true. Yeah, gods, gods are like, I'm the strongest warrior, you can't be. I'm the hottest goddess, you can't be hot. But like fairies are just like, <laughs> you didn't set a place for me at the table, that's it, your daughter's gonna die. Like, it's pretty extreme. <laughs> Well, um, one thing I did want to add in here, Ryan, um, there was a part of Perot's story where the uh, evil queen mother, as, I, as she was referenced to, she tries to trick um, Aurora or Sleeping Beauty into uh, thinking that she's the prince. And so she wants her to send the kids over so that way um, they can be with their father. And her plan is actually to eat them. Or make him, or make the the king eat them. What a joker! And so, but but one of the things is that the cook ends up saving the lives of the kids. So I think that maybe one of the morals is is you know don't always follow what people are telling you to do if you don't believe it's the right thing. Because at the end of the story, the king yes. actually rewards him for saving his children because he 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 substituted the children, he hid them, saved them from the queen mother, and used lamb instead or goat. And, uh, the chef is he's the real hero yeah he cooks like i can't remember what it is but it's like a baby lamb for the boy and a goat you know a goat for the girl <clears throat> right. and then venison for aurora or sleeping beauty herself yeah it's um and it's that and the cook really is the hero um as you know and cooks and 
uh, servants, uh, the, there's a whole kind of pattern of fairy tales. It's all about the good servant. And um, well, you got to think about who's telling the story. Themselves. Sorry? You got to think about who's telling the story. It's the usually the lower Absolutely. class. Absolutely. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So teach so, dissidents, um, and that will go well for you in most cases. Well, and not only that, the, at one point, the, the Aurora was going to sacrifice herself because she thought her, her kids have died. So she was just going to give into it. And the cook was like, hey, no, by the way, your kids are totally cool. I have them in the shed out back. Don't worry about this. <laughs> Someone told my kids in the shed out back, I wouldn't think everything's cool. <laughs> Okay. Disguised as kitchen aids, like it was um, a different time. I just want, I just yeah. want to point that out. But but now that I think about it, though, there totally is some kind of reoccurring theme with these these you know servants or butlers or maids or whatever you know being being the shining beacon you know at the you know at the end of the day who comes through uh, saving everyone. I, I never really thought about that, but yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, there's this great um, Grimm Brothers story called Good Johannes or like the Good Servant John. And um, it's it's a good example of the good servant trope. And normally the servant ends up sacrificing himself to save the prince. And um, the servant is so beloved by the family that they sacrifice the heir to the throne. Um, a wizard says, if you sacrifice the heir to the throne and like pour the baby's blood on the body of poor dead Johannes, who did everything he could to save the kingdom, then he'll be brought back to life. And they do it. They do it. It's oh, about, wow. um, he's like, that's it. I'll just kill the you know, my baby and bring back my servant. But um, <laughs> it's <laughs> very fine. gruesome. But I, I love those stories, The Good Servant. There was one growing up I really love called Princess Felicity about a prince, a prince who wants to rescue a princess from the tower, but he can't do it, so his servant does it. And, um, yeah, I just, I just love the kind of the good servant myth. I mean, I, I always go for the, the old soldiers in fairy tales and the, the hardworking gardeners who end up with the princesses. They're always my favorite characters, yeah. Sounds a lot like Aladdin, the poor servant street rat who somehow magically gets the princess at the end of the day. Sorry, I know I'm spoiling Yeah, change your fortune, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that actually laid out a whole lot of groundwork that we're not going to have to actually touch on because that that was a lot of questions that could have come along the way for Sleeping Beauty, but uh, that's awesome. That's It was more in-depth than I was expecting to go, but that's great. Um, I guess, uh, Claire, are you ready for some more questions? Absolutely. All right, Claire, so we are going to be getting another hard hitter taken care of tonight with Cinderella. And this is a very famous one. Once again, uh, Disney has a rendition of it. But it was also a story that was done by Perot, correct? Yes, it's a Perot story is the one we know the best, yeah. Okay. Uh, and he had his own little flares added to it that we can cover in a second. But me doing the research on this, it would have taken me a couple weeks to actually <laughs> properly give this a nice little um, primer to it. Because, oh my god, this is like almost as much as flood myths when it so comes to... make Claire do it because we're lazy. Well, I'll give a little bit. But <laughs> from what I've seen of this is that Cinderella has its roots in pretty much everywhere. Uh, just as many as flood myths. I mean, it has some roots in... In some way or another, it's one of those amalgamation stories that eventually became what it is today. But there is kind of a story that finds similarities. And according to several sources, there's China, Indonesia. I'm just going to say almost the entirety of Asia, including Korea. And then you also have the British version. Uh, and even Iran has a story somewhat similar to Cinderella, where it is the overworked girl who has a stepmother and two other entitled sisters who don't do anything else and then all of a sudden life changes when she meets a person that has either some sort of status that is above her and her family or 
has some sort of way out for her. And then, once again, the jealous family tries to thwart that, but it usually ends up for the better for her at the end of it. And then so a few different slippers got thrown into it at certain points. Uh, well, the one we know today is a glass slipper, and then Prince Charming comes along where, Josh, you're the one that knows Disney well. Did Prince Charming ever have a name in Cinderella? No. Charming is his name. Okay, cool. Yeah. It must be French. Um, <laughs> Chamon. Chamon. <laughs> uh, so uh, I guess that is the high and low of it, uh, the very broad strokes. But I guess the thing that surprised me the most is uh, my, my fiance is very much into fairy tales as well. And I was asking her when we were talking, I was like, well, so what should I talk about for sleeping? And he's like, oh, you can mention the slippers. And I was like, what about them? Uh, well, there was the glass. You know, it wasn't originally glass. It was actually a first slipper. And then there's the whole toe cutting thing. And then let me think. And I was like, stop. What are you talking about with toe cutting? And then she described that to me. Uh, Claire, do you want to elaborate at all on that? Yeah, well, the toe cutting is in the Grimm Brothers version. So, um, yeah, you're right. Cinderella is incredibly old. The oldest one that I found is the Chinese. And I think a lot of them, uh, where the fairy godmother is a magic fish. Um, I love but, that. Uh, <laughs> I know. It's always it's a, a koi that can talk. Yes, I love the talking koi. It's so beautiful. <laughs> um but, yeah, in the Grimm Brothers version, because they're dark, the Grimm Brothers, um, she doesn't have a fairy godmother. She has the ghost of her departed mother. Her Ooh. mother is dead. And her mother's ghost gives her a golden gown and a pair of golden shoes to go to the ball. And, um, and she loses her slipper, as we know, and the prince takes it to her stepsisters and they try and try it on tried on but it won't fit so one of the sisters cuts off their toes and puts the shoe on and he goes it fits and she jumps on the horse with the prince and they're about to ride off into the sunset and then the ghost of cinderella's mother says look at the look at her feet it's covered in blood and he looks down and he goes oh my goodness this isn't the girl she's bleeding um <laughs> he takes her back and then they're like okay we'll, we'll rinse this golden shoe and try it on the other sister um get the blood out of it and it doesn't fit so she cuts off her heels the process repeats. And, of course, then Cinderella puts on the bloodstained shoe and it's really hers. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> so I don't get why it's pretty gross. just brought it back. I mean, I guess it's the days before Uber. But um, <laughs> just, it, it, that's just insane. Like, thinking about that, in I guess the idea of it is that like somebody would go to that sort of extreme just to raise that much of a rung in society at that point or it was it more of a spite thing against her sister the fact that she was the one that was meant for it also on another tangent gold slipper glass slipper both of those would be terrible gold slippers extremely <laughs> malleable that heel would break immediately glass slippers needless to say probably break immediately as and, well and it'd be heavy as shit. yeah gold slipper wait so she only lost one slipper right right yeah, couldn't she couldn't cooperate that with her other slipper at that point? Well, it depends on which version you're seeing you're, you're talking about because um, the other slipper breaks. Oh, okay. Oh, like I had expected. Yeah, mm -hmm. when it's glass, or sometimes uh, that if it's been brought by magic, it disappeared at midnight as well. So when you have the fairy godmother in the Perot version, everything disappears at midnight except the slipper that the prince was holding. Um, but it evolves from versions of the story which originally didn't have a shoe. They had a ring. So there's a magic ring that uh, that slips off her finger and it only fits her finger. Um, and much more comfortable. A simple gold ring. A lot easier. And I, a lot more practical. And... Yeah, and the, and, the, and the prince finds it and then he's like, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, whoever fits this ring, I will wed. 
I'll, I'll just um, toss the finger. You who, know. Whoever's a seven toss and a half, you know, <laughs> they're perfect. And the sisters are just like shaving off part of their fingers, some gruesome, horrible tail. We're, <laughs> we're definitely making sure we're in the dark mist collective still. Uh, yeah. Uh, but um, you, you're missing out the cinder lads as well. It's important to point out that there are male Cinderella's as well. In fact, the term... Uh, the cinder term, the cinder lad, comes from the mostly Norse stories, uh, Scandinavian stories of the ash lad and the cinder lads, um, which is about the youngest of three brothers who rescues a princess or who goes on an adventure. And it's a really similar structured story, um, except that he doesn't get an awesome outfit, which is a shame. But he normally gets a magical horse. Or an axe. Um, That's what I always figured. It's always a horse or an axe when it comes to Norse mythology. That's all they cared about. Or a sword, yeah, sometimes, but yeah, yeah. But uh, the Ashlad and the name and things um, is certainly is from the from the male stories, yeah. That's interesting. I did not know that at all. Once again, there's too much to really skim over with this, and like it's almost doing it injustice seeing how much you could go into with Cinderella alone. Like, I'm surprised you haven't had like a four parter on just every story from that. Just oh man, I haven't done Cinderella yet because it's so big and also because people don't seem to be as into it because all they know is the very kind of sweet cleaned up version and i think a lot of people think of it as the most boring story well hopefully yeah. this will wet their whistle a little bit about that you know yes it was water something i found interesting about the whole cinderella story is that or what's kind of becoming clear to me through talking about these type of uh fairy tales or folklores is that you know myths this was written for kind of a entire nation and it was supposed to be about just like the people as a whole and usually you only see the big guys in myths or anything like that but it seems with these fairy tales from what we've been touching on and especially what greg's about to cover next myths are more of a fatalism thing to the point where this is what's going to happen to you and you can't fight it and this you know you're going to have to accept your fate no matter how good or bad of a person. This is what's going to happen. Destiny is destiny. Yes. However, with fairy tales, it seems like a lot of them are kind of uh, as dark as they can turn out. They seem to have that little glitter of hope that you can actually escape what you were born into at some point uh, by one means or another in whatever twisted way they have it posed to you uh, for the time you know there's always some sort of i guess um bar to set for what time period is being written in but it seems like they have that little bit of a teaching of like you can actually accomplish something else other than just being you know this servant girl or this servant boy whether by another thing it, it just seems encouraging for the most part it- Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it is that thing of they were told by lower class people. I mean, there's a famous uh, folklorist called Jack Zipes, and he talks about how many stories have spinning wheels in them and have spinning like Rumpelstiltskin, Sleeping Beauty. And he says it's because it was mostly the sort of thing you would do while doing those daily tasks. You tell stories. And that means it is lower class people who at least started the stories or kept them going, kept them alive. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's actually a pretty cool reference point right there with the whole spinning wheel. I didn't. Once again, didn't think of that because I put my you know head into that all one. the time. Well, but spinning it, it wheels. needs to be that fish. I guess there's a whole idea right. in like movie making today. There's the fish out of water concept where in order to establish like actual character development, you have to make that person relatable in some way, shape or form. And that seems to be a good shoe in for most fairy tales. I mean, most of the time it's not written from the view. That's a lie. I would say it's not written from the viewpoint of the royalty, but there is some like that. Well, I was gonna, I was actually just going to say that like 
Frozen is one that comes to mind that's recent, uh, you know, as far as one that's really popular. But, I mean, most of these fairy tales that, that you learn as a child, you know, whether it be through Disney movies or from somebody telling telling them to you, it's from somebody who was from the bottom and worked their way up. Yeah, we're not going to start quoting Drake. I wasn't going to. Um, um, Frozen's not a fairy tale in any way, shape, or form. Shut it's down. A movie. I, I, I was just <laughs> using that as a reference but for, Disney. like, people who know these 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 stories of totally yeah that's what i was referencing but in this in the snow queen it's about a peasant girl who goes to rescue her best friend you know which um so it's even more more about the the underdog oh and that boy Uh, in the snow queen is like a total dick too when she try when she tries to find him i mean he's like cursed well he's under a curse but yeah yeah he's he's a massive dick yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah so getting ahead of ourselves uh greg do you want to go ahead and bring up the next one yeah, so um, one of the topics we were we discussed when we were uh, kicking around ideas with you, Claire, was um, Aladdin. And um, I know he comes from um, Antoine Galon. He uh, did a lot of the um, translations of – yeah, you can – I saw you smirk in there. Anyway, he, uh, <laughs> did, he did the translations for uh, Arabian Nights, you know, 1001. And um, Alibaba and Aladdin are two of the ones that are very questionably – at this point, it's almost decided that they were not actually a part of the original tales – um, that there's different arguments that maybe he added them to it or, you know, can remember, but there seems to be a lot of suggestions that a little more than suggestions at this point that Aladdin actually is a Chinese tale, but, um, there's all kinds of arguments about, but ultimately that the Aladdin we know, which is usually associated with, uh, thousand one is not actually from those tales that were translated by Galan, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, it's a it's quite an unusual tale, and I think I think that the shame about the Disney adaptation is the fact that the story has two genies in it. And I mean, I love the uh, Disney Aladdin, but um, I'm like, you had an opportunity for two genies, and you only put in one. Like, it seems such a shame. And one of them's a hot lady genie. Who would have been your second genie though? You got Rob Williams on one hand, but who would be the person you would pick for that second hot lady genie? Was well, you know, it's Disney, so I gotta go someone like Bette Midler. Like that would have been fun. Like she was kicking around for a sassy lady, Judy. She's still alive. Oh, whoops! Uh, Bette Midler's not dead. (laughs) Don't do that. I end up killing celebrities. Remember that? (laughs) That is true. Well, actually, she's in very good health. Hasn't scored a goal yet, so we're good. (laughs) Oh, Aaron Ramsey. Uh, Technically, if you want to get really technical, they did have two genies. Because at the end of yeah, Aladdin, say. <laughs> Jafar does turn into a genie. He wasn't too hot. Yeah, though. but there's no. He's not the. He becomes a genie of the lamp. He doesn't become. There's a genie of the ring in the tale. Oh, so there's a whole separate genie right. that has a different place that she lives. I'm not gonna argue anymore. Dude, you just got wrecked. I know. I'm not gonna argue anymore. <laughs> I don't win. Good <laughs> thing she's not and going the, out the penalty shots. That's why. That's why she has a better. <laughs> the genie of the ring is a much more useful genie. So um. How so? But yeah. Oh, because she, she doesn't have a limit on the amount of wishes she can grant. She's less powerful, um, but uh, she's she's also in a, a lot of the versions. Um, I read her as being in love with Aladdin, as well, and that's certainly what in some of the. I mean, Aladdin as a fairy tale owes a lot of its um, staying power to British pantomime. It was a very popular pantomime uh, to be put on, and. Um, uh, in which Aladdin was played by a woman like Peter Pan, uh, and um, and it's very funny and very silly and set in China in in the in the pantomime as well, and the yeah and there's always like this very sassy lady playing the the genie of the ring and 
See, that's interesting with the whole Aladdin thing with like the set in China deal because I know that there was the confusion about what it was translated from, but from what I've read, I, correct me if I'm wrong immediately, but it she was will. Islamic folklore, but it was still set in China. It was just kind of vague. It was like Islamic saying that it was set in China, but it was still told by Islamic folklorists. Galad, uh, so Galad translated a lot of Arabian fairy tales, as in uh, fairy tales that were written in Arabic. They weren't necessarily um, Arabic in origin. Right. However, there there isn't a recorded version of uh, Alibaba or Aladdin. Um, there is no physical recording of them in uh, Turkish, Persian, or Arabic. Um, so, I mean, with Alibaba, we think it may have originally been a Greek story or taken from and oh, wow. Turkish Christian monk. Uh, so why do they think that? Where where where's that argument come from? Just out of curiosity. There's a there's a classic Greek tale called the um, uh, about that has very similar to Alibaba about forty nine dragons mm. um, that are sitting on a, a treasure full of gold, <laughs> and <laughs> you know there's a good brother and a bad brother like in Alibaba, and the good brother finds the dragon's treasure, takes a little bit while the dragons are asleep or away, and then goes back and starts his life, and the bad brother goes and is discovered by the dragons, and killed. That's like an exact um, rip off of the Alibaba that we know right now. <laughs> Well, I guess the Alibaba <laughs> yeah. we know right now is the ripoff. It's just this it's robbers instead of dragons for anybody that's uninformed. It's pretty much that's where Open Sesame comes from. Uh, the whole cave has Open Sesame and the robbers didn't know. The good brother is hanging from a tree, hears him say it and goes and steals stuff. And then just as you said, it just replaced dragon with robbers. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really similar tale and that one's Greek. And so that's one of the reasons we think it's Greek. And also because we know he collected some tales orally off uh so a coptic christian a turkish christian monk and so they're uh a, a lot of them at the time you know turkey and greece are very similar cultures yeah. um and so that's why they think the origin may have originally been greek or cypriot um but Ali aladdin no one really knows which makes it amazing and interesting and i and there is an argument that perhaps it was an orally collected story that was originally chinese and then he added in the genies or the jinn, if we're going to use proper terminology I to sound more, um, yeah. you know, to make it sound more Arabic, um, because even things like the vizier and stuff, they, it's all kind of, no one knows. And I guess that's why it's really interesting, um, as to, as to where the story came from. And I mean, maybe that's why it's so popular too, is because it was able to be crafted, um, yeah. Well, it, well, the, but the Disney movie, sorry. The, the interesting part about the jinn is that most of the time they're portrayed as like either a trickster like Loki or as just kind of this um, natural force that can't be trusted. But in Aladdin, it seems to be more of a beneficial thing to Aladdin at least. And that's the that's the weird part where it kind of flips the, the script on what a jinn is, or I guess a genie at that point. And I think that's something interesting to say. Uh, in the original version, is the genie any less dependable than he would be in, say, the Disney version? Um, in the, no. So, so there's two, two genie, the genie of the ring is very helpful, but she's less powerful. She can't do a lot. Um, and then there's the genie of the lamp who doesn't want to do anything. He, he, he's refusing. He makes everything very difficult. He's very grumpy. He's furious about being trapped in a lamp. Um, and he isn't let go at the end. Um, <laughs> oh. uh, so he's, um, 
and he's just incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous. It was, it's like, yeah. Well, I've, I've, so a, how does how does the the female genie work with Jasmine as far as the story of Aladdin goes? Because if she clearly has some kind of affection for Aladdin, then I'm assuming Jasmine wouldn't really fly by her. Well, it's not Jasmine, so it's just a princess, and she's a pretty well, nominal well, character. Yeah. She doesn't really have a lot of impact, and she's just there, really. Like, she doesn't say anything or do anything. Uh, you know, a lot of the women in the Arabian Night stories, not all of them, but some of them are very passive. Um, some of them are purely just plot points, and that's certainly the case in Aladdin. It's much more about his mother, um, who is... Um, trying to have her son make her fortune. His mother runs this laundry, this Chinese laundry. Um, <laughs> and it's all about helping her son climb up in the world. And the Vizier, it's much more of an adventure story and much less of a romance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Disney version owes a lot to a early Hollywood film uh, called The Thief of Baghdad. And there's been three versions of that film made. Mm -hmm. um, an early 20s one, a 1940s one, and a terrible 1970s one. They're all really racist. Um, <laughs> but the whole kind of world of Agrabah and everything looks a lot like The Thief of Baghdad. And making uh, Aladdin a street urchin and a thief, that all comes straight from The Thief of Baghdad. There's even a monkey called Abu in the thief of Baghdad. So yeah, there's some confusion with the whole thing with the Agrabah issue. And when when I was in um Disneyland Tokyo, they had a whole Agrabah Square, and they have like you know food like you know restaurants in every section. And it turns out that um yeah they were selling curry in Agrabah. <laughs> so a um, mm. little bit of a distance there, but mm. you know that I guess their heart was in the right place. Maybe I guess they couldn't, you know, find some good Mediterranean or you know Persian food. Or yeah, Arabic well, food. there there is pa I mean, there were Pakistani tales in and Indian tales in the A Thousand and One Nights. So I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we'll I think, talk I think it's just a big them. kind of. We'll give them that pass. Uh, I guess <laughs> yeah. we'll wrap this question up with just where would you put this one? Because would you say? Folklore or fairy tale? Because there is magic involved. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, it's 100% a fairy tale to me. I think the A Thousand and One Nights, Arabian Nights stories, um, they follow the same patterns. They're called wonder tales, which I think fit a lot better. Um, and um, But that's 100% the same thing. For me, it's not a myth. The only one that would be an exception is Sinbad. Um, cause Sinbad is a, is a le legend and, and, and that was Galan, that was the one that kind of kicked down the door for Galan, correct? That was one of his first Absolutely. translations, right? Everyone liked Galan's, uh, Sinbad so much. They're like, do you have any more of this? And he's like, well, here's a whole other culture stories. Let's just take them. Yeah, absolutely. But they're often loped in Sinbad, um, as part of the other stories. Yeah. yeah. But he's his own thing. <laughs> yeah, he's in First Kid and such and such and such. <laughs> oh, God, Ryan. Okay. He's also in... Um... All right, that's enough. <laughs> Moving on. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in uh, here with The Little Mermaid, which is one of my absolute favorite Disney movies. I love The Little Mermaid, though. That, that was one of the movies that when I was a kid, my mom would put on, and I would just watch it over and over and over again, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. But one of the things that I learned when doing research for this was just how dark and just desolate this tale gets at times and just like it was overwhelming at points because 
the the main thing about the Little Mermaid that I loved was that you know good always triumphs evil you know love always wins you know just you know you're very cliche stories but I just that's re- just very American <laughs> yeah and it's it's not like that at all I mean you have the Ariel you know the Little Mermaid who is looking to you know first off I didn't realize that um, they actually put a, a, a lifespan on mermaids. Because uh, in the fairy tale, they only are alive for 300 years. Only. only. <laughs> but I just, that's not something that I ever really thought about. You know, I always just figured mermaids were. Hey, that's story building. But I guess on that, once again, the origin of it. Like, I thought it was way older than it actually was. No, it's 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 not that old. Um, I mean, it's Hans Christian Andersen, who was the, what, 1837 was the, when it was published, I think. Yeah. Our first definite not fairy tale. Yeah. Well, the- well, yeah, Hans Andersen is what you would call a literary fairy tale. So it's still a fairy tale. However, it didn't come from an oral tradition. He made up his own. But some of them that he wrote, like The Wild Swans, is uh, is an oral story that he just wrote a version of. But Little Mermaid is 100% his creation. Very interesting, yeah. And very sad. She dies at the end. She turns into foam upon the waves. Yeah. They live for 300 years, but they have no soul. So she can't, she has to earn her way into heaven. That was the, have a the second life. Yeah, that was the interesting thing about this is, well, first off, like you said, this was like the first one out of all of these where you can actually put a date on like, okay, this is where it came from. And like, you can see, like you can pinpoint it, you know, on a timeline where the Little Mermaid is from. But there's a lot of religious overtones in this story, which I was not expecting at all. Hans Anderson had some really complicated sexual identity issues, which are really debatable as to what was going on with his own sexual identity. Um, and certainly a lot of religious issues. But um, when you look at stories like Agnenta and The Seeking, which is a S- Swedish tale, so just across the pond from um, Denmark and really popular in Denmark too. The story of Agnenta is about a girl who falls in love with the sea king and gets taken down and lives under the waves with him. And that one, she gets saved. She goes to visit her family and goes into a church and is suddenly cured of all her love for the sea king. It's all about church. She has to save her soul. If she stayed with the mermaids, she would lose her soul. It's very religious undertones. So he writes his yeah. own conversion therapy. That's very well, but that that's kind of like at the end of this. I mean, she, she, well, first off, I mean, I'll get to the actual story of it, but at the end of it, her her soul is saved. Like that was a big part of this the story. It was kind of a bait and switch, though. The entire time they're just like, if you can get this guy to fall in love with you, I think what is it? We'll give you either your voice back, or we'll give you your soul back, or we'll give you a soul. Well, first off, it wasn't just your voice. She cut out her tongue as well. Okay, that's important. Yeah, so it was both. Yeah, um, and. There's a whole and, and but the the another like religious overtone over this is when she finally sees. Uh, well, let me, let me just pause there. The whole reason she sees the prince in the first place is because when mermaids turn 15, they're allowed to go up to the surface for the first time and see the world around them, you know, besides, you know, under the sea. Right. That's a pretty cool bat mitzvah, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and the quinceanera. Well, when she does this, she sees the prince and she immediately falls in love with him and he ends up falling overboard and drowning and she saves him. But so he didn't drown. He didn't drown. But he thinks that the girl from the temple saved him, not Ariel. And so the girl from the temple is the one who he ends up falling in love with. And that's when, you know, things go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. I love that out. you just like you save this prince, you put him up on the 
beach, you know, you've gone to all this effort, you're probably late for your curfew, right. um, and then some bitch princess is, like, just happens <laughs> to be staying at a convent nearby, and she comes down and claims all your hard work. Like, what are the odds? Well, so thanks for and saving then, me. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, no totally, problem. No, totally, totally. Not a big cute. deal. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's also, like, part of the reason she falls in love with him is because he looks like a statue that she keeps that she's found underneath the water, which is where you get that Disney image from, yeah. you know, that it's yeah. his statue and stuff. But it, it's it's so weird, like the such a weird point in the story that she's in love with this statue and then she finds the guy that the statue looks like. Um, I think Disney smoothed out that plot hole really well. Well, once again, Hans Christian Andersen is kind of a weird issue because, once again, a lot of these are you know, the origin of, like, old wives' tales, I just say, are just from the common folk t- doing these oral traditions, and it's usually the women trading the stories. This is a dude that just wrote this story all on his own, and he has this whole, like, hierarchy with all these different things and plot building that goes crazy. And he has a very st- different view on how things work when he writes in a story. I think it's pretty clear. It's He has a very caste system type of deal. And... Totally. Yeah. And he created like a, his own mythology about mermaids. He took little bits about from Russian folklore, little bits from European folklore, and a lot from maritime stories of mermaids. And he kind of went, this is what I think mermaids are. Um, and that's why it's this kind of literary hybrid. But it is very sad. It's very tragic. A lot of people think that Hans Anderson was asexual or repressively gay. And so the whole idea about her not being with the prince at the end and um, choosing to kill herself rather than to harm her prince and thus save her life is about his own personal sacrifices. So well, one of the things <laughs> it's that depressing. I, well, the thing that I find interesting was some of the characteristics that he gave the mermaids, like the beautiful singing voice um, or the, the hair, because one of the things that, that you mentioned is that after you find out that the prince is going to marry somebody else, her sister's, uh, Ariel's sisters come up to the surface and give her a knife that they got from the evil sea witch, which uh, is Ursula in the the move the Disney movie. But that was gonna be my question. Yeah. Where's Ursula? Um, she it's an evil sea witch that she uh, that Ariel ends up trading her uh, her tongue and her voice for uh, to be able to get legs to go fall in love with the prince. But... Evil sea witch. I prefer a good sandwich. Okay. Hey. So <laughs> her sisters though cut off their hair and traded in for a knife. And her sisters give Ariel the knife and they're like, yeah, what you need to end up doing is uh, you need to kill the prince and let his blood drip on your feet so you can come back to the ocean. Yeah, that's a lot of cool pranks that they're really playing on Ariel. She's I mean, like that like that is a drastic turn in the story, because it's one thing to not have somebody fall in love with you. It's another for your sisters to hand you a knife and be like, let his blood flow on you. Yeah, once again, like apparently, sisters cannot get along in any of these stories. Well, no, the sisters were fine. They they got they were trying to. The sisters help love her. each other so much. Yeah. You know, they sacrificed their hair, and mermaids have magic hair, so it was a really big sacrifice. Yeah. You know, magic hair. <laughs> they they sacrificed so much so they could have their sister back, and she was the youngest one, like the least valuable, but the most <laughs> annoying. But like one of the, the she said it. That's true, <laughs> but just just kind of like coming back full circle and all of this, like one of the the biggest you know, religious overtones and all this that they keep referencing is how important the soul is to a person and how, you know, one day it will rise up into the kingdom of God. And because 
Ariel or the Little Mermaid doesn't end up killing the prince and she's so selfless that she will be given a chance to earn her soul by doing good deeds for mankind for 300 years. Really? It's like a precursor to the noble savage, if anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of Hans Anderson stories end with heaven. You know, the little match girl, um, the brave tin soldier. It's a lot about how this life sucks and the next one's going to be better. He really likes to focus on that. And... Yeah, but I mean, people thought that fairies, mermaids were evil spirits. They didn't have souls. They were these dark, poisonous things that weren't as good as humans. It's the one thing that we had over them is that we were going to go to heaven. See, the way you posed it has changed my view on it kind of because from other podcasts that I won't mention or other places that I've read, uh, there's things that have talked about how Hans Christian Andersen, which is a bad writer in general, just had all these bad morals about things. But really, it could have been kind of um, an exercise in therapy for himself, which makes him a little bit more sympathetic in my eyes, if anything. Oh, totally. He was very tortured. He wrote these very sad, very beautiful love letters to both men and women who did not return his affections. Um, and there's a great story about him uh, staying with Charles Dickens and, like, what a weird, odd dude he was. Like, Dickens... You know, this overbearing big guy is like, Anderson, Anderson, you can come stay with my family in London anytime you want, anytime. Splendid. And so this <laughs> splendid, splendid, anytime. I've like Charles Dickens has like nine kids. I can't remember how many, it's a lot. Um, and Anderson comes and stays, and he's weird, really introverted, quiet Danish dude, very tall, um, and he just would not leave. <laughs> Charles, why did you invite Lurch over here? Can you please go home? We're tired of him. <laughs> And because he was so awkward and polite and Danish, he, like, even after they tried to, like, get him to leave, they, it took them actually booking his passage back to Denmark before he would leave the house. <laughs> hey, we'll meet you at the restaurant that we were supposed to go to. Just get on this train. We're in one behind you. We couldn't get tickets on this one, but we want you to make sure we can get the table first. So you just head over there, and we'll meet you there. That I guess they pulled that switch on him. Uh you got anything else, a Little Mermaid? No, no, no. That's that's it. I just that was enlightening, Greg. Yep. I will say, I I remember, I distinctly remember being in Copenhagen and seeing a really kind of creepy Copenhagen. statue, Copenhagen, um, a, a kind of creepy statue commemorating the Little Mermaid, Hans Christian Andersen. Um, I'll I remember I'll try to put it in the show notes. I just I just didn't know if uh, Clary had any insight on that. I remember seeing a statue for it was it was of the mermaid. Oh, it's the it's the mermaid statue. It's yeah, the famous the, one of her and, looking out to sea. Yeah, and it was kind of like it's kind of creepy to be honest. Oh, so you know, I am dying to see it. I have a list of fairy tale statues that I am planning to see around the world, and that is on it. It's and a cool one. I remember <laughs> looking at it and just being like unsettled by it. We just got a we yeah. just got a fairy tale statue in New Orleans. Oh God. Oh really? Overnight, a Pikachu statue uh, showed up in a park. Not even lying, like a giant Pikachu statue just. It was appeared. on Reddit and everything. <laughs> That's great. No. Uh, Claire, this is a request by you. I guess we're gonna have to go into this. I did what I could for this one. Um, Pinocchio. Uh, yeah. Pinocchio yeah. seems to be something that uh, was particularly piquing your interest when we were talking about this, and I guess. Most people would know this. Once again, something covered by Disney. It was written in 1883 by Carlo uh, Collodi or Coyote. I don't know how you would do it for the Italian. Collodi. 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 <laughs> just making sure. Collodi. Um, his his real name was actually something else. It was Lorenzini. Oh, okay. I only, I only his saw name Collodi. was Carlo Lorenzini. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to have to correct yeah. that one there. 
Um, but no, no, no. That was his the name he published under Colodi. Oh, okay. But it wasn't his real name. Pen name. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so. Pinocchio is actually a very uh, more expanded story. It has like the adventures of Pinocchio as opposed to just the movie that you know or one singular tale. However, he still does have a start to finish. And uh, 1883, once again, that is um, not very old for something you would usually consider to be a fairy tale. Um, No, it's considered by a lot to be the first children's book, as in a novel written for kids. And uh, yeah, I think the reason I requested it... (laughs) <laughs> well, in the so he originally had it serialized like a Disney book, um, like, like a Disney book, like a Dickens book. We were talking about Dickens, um, and in boots. that original version, Pinocchio is hung at the end for his crimes. Yeah, He's hanged. I should I read say. The, yeah, the the cat and the fox decide to bound him up and just you know throw him over a tree. Wait, by Pinocchio the gets hanged. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a downer. Yeah, well, it's, he's already a marionette, so he's... I mean, wood returns to wood. <laughs> so, wait. So, there are strings I on him? I thought it was funny. There are strings on him at the end. <laughs> they showed him. Uh, but, uh, Claire, just uh, go wild. Tell us what you wanted to tell us about Pinocchio. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I just wanted to mention Pinocchio because so often, um, you know, people just lump things like Pinocchio, Robin Hood, um, Alice in Wonderland as fairy tales when they're not. And um, and they are normally legends or myths, or they are, in this case, books, you know, like with Alice in Wonderland. And um, and there are fairy tale elements, the fairy with a turquoise hair um, or the blue fairy, you know. But um, the main reason I wanted to talk about it is just because it's it's not a fairy tale, it's a book. And, and the, there's a big difference in how a book is written compared to a fairy tale. You, you have know. that instant source right there. There's no going back before that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, and there's also just more to the story. The characters are more developed. It, it, it's a different thing to experience. Yeah. Well, one um, of the things that are... that we we talked about was we we brought up Alice in Wonderland in one of our previous episodes. Was people had a hard time dealing with it because they thought that it was uh, it was it was too much that, you know, the writers had to be on drugs when, when uh, uh, concocting the story because it was so out there. But that's what we kept saying is that it, it has a basis. There's something it's based off of. Wait, who wrote it? Lewis, Lewis Carroll, right? Lewis Carroll. Lewis, Lewis yeah, Carroll. Charles Dodgson. That's Charles. his real name. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember Lewis. I didn't know that part. Once again, just dropping all these bombs on so, it. My, my mind is... Uh, <laughs> all like I know she is that, knows what she's talking about well, or something. He probably <laughs> pen-named because Lewis Carroll was known to be a... Um, in professional terms, a fucking nerd. For the 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 way that I've heard of this is that Lewis Carroll wrote the book as a way to show how abstract math is completely ridiculous and it should not be even addressed. It was kind of um, it, almost like sketch writing where he was just showing how things are supposed to be so absolutely absurd and was comparing his story to the way of these new forms of mathematics were coming up. And he cared a lot about math, just he was a little bit more in the old school as opposed to the new. Is there anything to confirm yeah. that one that you've heard of? Yes, yes, he was a mathematician and he was also friends with Tolkien and um, C.S. Lewis as well, um, who wrote the Narnia books. And um, But he was also a pedophile. Um, oh. <laughs> he, um, Not about you know, that. He was a fucking pedophile. <laughs> he took photos um, that are quite... Uh, you can see them. They're not explicit online. Um, We're not going to put them in the show notes, everybody. Say, uh, nope, they're they're daguerreotypes Google. of very young girls. And one of them was a girl called Alice Little, who he had a very close relationship with. And her family were so keen to end the strange relationship they had. And she is Alice from Alice in Wonderland that they moved to Australia. 
<laughs> and <laughs> and so Alice Little, Alice from Alice Wonderland, actually ended up growing up in Australia because yeah, it was it's a very uh, unusual situation. And I mean, yeah, he he certainly had some stuff going on with young girls. So it's this time it creepy. wasn't the criminals going to Australia; it was actually the victims. The people huh? trying to es- escape. <laughs> oh, <from> she <laughs> threw American humor at us. Oh, boo! Nah, that's pretty funny. Claire is not associated <laughs> with any sort of criminals that we know of. Singing Bones made us tell that joke. Um, they take full responsibility. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a particularly disturbing kind of... He's a very unusual man, again, to, to examine. Um, but yeah, he was part of a, a, a group in... I can't remember if it's Cambridge or Oxford, where they were all friends, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Lewis Carroll. Well, it's funny with between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. I mean, he made his own world of folklore and fairy tales almost. But uh, Tolkien, like, even though he's friends with uh, Lewis, from what I understand, he didn't like his writing whatsoever. He was just like, this guy is way too upfront with his symbolism. I don't like it. I'm still friends with him, though. I mean, I I read uh, what's it called? Oh man, the one right in between, like the devil Dude, looking guy. No. Oh, uh, screw tape letters. The screw tape letters. Yeah, and that was a little bit dry. I'd much prefer Lord of the Rings, but um, wow, we're off topic. Uh, anything else you want to say about Pinocchio in the meantime no, before we jump on to go. the last one of the let's, night? Let's All right. let it go. Greg? All right, so our last one is, um, it, it is still Disney territory, but it's a little different because it has the Greek connection, unlike most of our other stuff we've done so far. Um, so Hercules, uh, I know that came up in our discussion. That was one of the ones we really wanted to hit. So, um, can you give us a little bit of where does Hercules kind of has that, uh, it definitely falls under Greek myths for sure. Um, there's, you know, the constellations, there's the whole, there's all kinds of stories that are associated with them and tales that are associated with them. So where do you like in the whole myths, tales, folklore, fairy tales, like, do you find he kind of strays from that spectrum in other ways or is he find just very adamantly it's like greek myth what do you what do you say he's, about that? he's very much myth very much myth to me um hercules and um you know he's part of greek literature as well is is in poetry and plays about hercules um but no he's it's not a fairy tale but you know uh but it's also something I, I know a little bit about i mean in greek he is heracleus or Herac- Heracles, not Hercules. That's a it's a Latinization to say Hercules. But he has the three um, women singing on the pottery the whole time, right? Like constantly yeah, throughout. Yeah, definitely all the singing on the pottery. Um, but yeah, it's a very different story from the Disney one. I mean, I really like the Disney Hercules. I think it's thoroughly underrated. Oh, um, thank God. I was so I was so worried. How are you going to feel about that one? <laughs> no, I think it's great. It's one of my favorites. Um, Soundtrack. Primo. Oh God. <laughs> Danny DeVito is Phil. Yeah, it's so good. But in the fairy tale, well, the, the myth, it's really, uh, he is already married. He is the illegitimate son of Zeus. So he's Zeus and another woman's child. And Hera is so jealous, um, who is Zeus's wife, Hera, that she curses Hercules to go mad. And Hercules goes mad and he kills his wife, Megara, and his two children, a son and a daughter. And. Uh, recovering from his momentary madness, he tries to seek penance for um, killing his wife and children. And uh, he goes to the Oracle of Delphi, who is all-knowing seer, who, and says that the only way he can repent is by signing himself to 12 years surface, service to the king Eurystheus. And so he goes and he has to serve, uh, 
he has to complete 12 labours. Uh, it's originally 10, but then two don't get counted. So he has to complete 12 heroic, impossible tasks to to get forgiveness for killing his wife and children. So it's a lot sadder. There's no going to heaven, there's no romance, there's no sassy um, don't say I'm in love songs and do up girls. <laughs> it's a real shame. Yeah, I see him like in service to an extremely dickish Baba Yaga. Like that's kind of just the whole totally. idea of like, we weren't expecting you to finish this one, and you're definitely not going to finish this one afterwards. Um, I guess Hercules, I was going to say, it's a good thing there wasn't a Hercules 2, or was there? Was it straight to video? If it was, I don't, I, I don't There's know. There's a TV series, I believe. The yeah. TV series yeah. is great. I yeah, used to love that. Because there was also yeah. the was whole fun. thing with him wearing that poison cloak and ended up killing up one of his next messages afterwards. Um, like uh, That's the thing with myths is like, not one person wrote that. It got picked up and just like added to continuously. So the original idea could have been skewed very much. But uh, I guess they probably a good move to just like take out the whole Megarella getting murdered thing and then just have him take on the Hydra and such and such and such beforehand before doing all that sort of stuff. And also you wouldn't miss out on the sassy choir too. But yeah, uh, totally. It, it, it makes it makes sense the way they adapted it, especially for kids. Um, I mean. There's, I have more questions about like the TV series back in the nineties. If you guys remember that, like oh, yeah, I do. You know, the the adventures of Hercules. Um, I mean, I think he's just become a figure of what a hero is. When originally back in ancient Greece and Rome, the ideal heroes were people like Orion and Achilles. Um, they were the real heroes. Whereas Hercules was this kind of penitent soul. You know, he was this man trying to earn his way back. I mean, some of the some of the tasks he did are really cool. I like some of the stories better than others. Um, bringing back Cerberus, the hound of Hades, is my favorite with the three heads. Yeah, but, you know. Why is that? Why does that stand out to you? I love stories of the underworld and stories of Hades. I always think he's such a cool dude. <laughs> like, what? I think he's a cool character. Do you now um, always envision James Woods as the voice of Hades? I don't, but I love the James Woods version. <laughs> I do like, too. that's God, so funny. Was so good. <laughs> it's so good. He was so, was so good. fun. Um, well, I, I do yeah. have a question. Was Pegasus always a big part of the story like he was in the movie? Oh. No, Pegasus comes from his own myth. That's what um, I thought. Yeah, Pegasus comes from his own myth about a man who is given Pegasus as a gift and uses it to try and fly to Mount Olympus where mortals can't go. Okay. And, oh, what's his name? Oh, yeah. God, I'm trying to remember it so yeah, badly. Yeah, I can't remember. Oh. It's one of the heroes, the Greek hero. Bellerophon's his name. And okay. yes, he was a guy that was pretty much like, I want to be one of the gods. I think I'm a pretty awesome dude. I will do anything I can to be among the greats. And he did all these things, probably did more good for his the people around him than any of the gods did. And at that point, when he tries to go up to the uh, to the Mount to Olympus. Mount Olympus, it's either either lightning strikes or something happens to the point where he gets bucked off of Pegasus, and he ends up falling down the cliff. And at that last second, Zeus comes in and literally takes Pegasus from him and just says, "You can't sit with us," and then just goes back to Olympus without uh, w- without Bellerophon, and he falls doesn't die and just goes around as a vagrant the entire time. I think he's blinded too. Like terrible things happen to him. And that feeds more into the whole fatalism thing. I think mythology is written by people that know they're going to be read for a while afterwards and that they can write about the big people. But um, the stories, and it's really just like putting people in their place most of the time. It's like You can't escape your fate in Greek myth. Like 
there is no way to escape your fate. I mean, look at Oedipus, the story of Oedipus. You try, it just gets worse. Don't 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 fight fate. It's just going to get worse. But meanwhile, yeah. you have folklore, which generally I imagine would not be to- told to like the quote bourgeoisie at that point, where it's these people just talking between each other about stories of somewhat hope and sometimes cautionary tales about what could come from the higher ups at that point. And it's um it's an interesting divide between the two, in my opinion. Uh, well, folklore was often recorded by the bourgeoisie, though. That's the important thing. So I think there were even the stories that peasants and lower class people would tell each other um, were even more so that way. And they were more about uh, Miller's sons and less about princes. Um, they were more about Miller's daughters and less about princesses. And I, if anything, we're getting even less of those stories. Um, because they were recorded by educated uh, bourgeoisie men. Well, that's that's actually one of the things I wanted to bring up is you mentioned, um, you know, kind of bringing this, you know, full circle now, how you mentioned how there's always like the servants and the butlers who always, you know, are that, that shining of, you know, shining beacon of light or whatever. The Greek mythology is so big on blind people having like this clear vision of, of what's right and wrong. And, and like that is such an integral part of, of Greek mythology throughout different parts of, of different stories. I just I, like that's a reoccurring thing. Like you just mentioned how he was blind and there's I, I forget what story I was reading the other day I, when I was preparing for this. It was about a, a blind soothsayer. It wasn't Caesar, by the way. That seems to be actually a pretty common thing. But to talk about blindness, uh, if you, to bring it back to fairy tales, is you see some of those uh, themes, like fairy tales are very much influenced by myth. Things like Beauty and the Beast come from Cupid and Psyche, which is Roman and then before that Greek. But um, things like Rapunzel, the, when the... Uh, at the end of Rapunzel, uh, the prince climbs to the top, to the tower, thinking he's going to run away with Rapunzel, and it's actually the witch. And the witch pushes the prince out the window, and he falls um, down Rapunzel's tower and is blinded by roses at the bottom, by yeah. thorns. It's that same thing, and he wanders the earth blind. It's very Greek. To um, He's trying to find Rapunzel, but he can't see. And um, and wherever he goes, he's, he's looking for her, calling her name. You know, It's very Greek kind of story yeah that's one thing i've definitely noticed just like just reoccurring and i'm i'm glad you were able to to give me more examples but yeah so i was right ryan take that personal note do not go to greece it's it's, it's greek in that (laughs) your hard work amounts to nothing because the fate said so (laughs) absolutely absolutely the whole idea that your fate has already been written by the by the the three fates they've gotten your hair and um they've woven it into the tapestry that was actually a really cool depiction i actually haven't thought about that in a long time how cool that was in hercules like in the movie that was such a brilliant and and how they all shared the eye the all-seeing eye as well that was was really cool Mm -hmm. that was so and that's straight up greek myth you know with a couple of jokes thrown in so i think that's one of the reasons i like it it's pretty true to the myths you know yeah well what I, I want to ask you one question. I just kind of thought of it. What is your personal opinion on Once Upon a Time? Oh, I hate it. Okay. Thank you. Hate okay. it. <laughs> I mean, mostly because oh, it's just terribly answer. written. And it's so like, it's a soap opera. And it's a soap opera owned by Disney. It's just so soapy. Um, and just, yeah. And all the things I hate. Um, uh, for 
getting confused between uh, fairy tales and literature. Like Peter Pan is a whole friggin' thing. And I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, it's all magical. Re- nah, just so many, so many problems. <laughs> can't even finish a I feel sentence. the same way about like fables, the graphic novel, you know, there are very few fairy tale based things that I actually enjoy. Well, you're interrupting yourself. Like you interrupt yourself with other complaints about it before you can finish the thought of a different complaint. Like it so upsets you. <laughs> One last question. All the new bad guys turn good. Uh, stories going on wicked uh maleficent there's a few others the misunderstood villain they're not as bad as you originally thought they were how do you feel about those yeah i like i don't mind them they're so far away because um you know they are adaptations of adaptations so when it's maleficent you know it's an adaptation of the disney is adapting itself they're cannibalizing their own stories and i think it just proves that these the the Disney versions are becoming the myths. They are becoming the stories that people know, and so they start. Yeah, look, I think it's lazy. I think just write a new story. Um, but you know, and things like the Snow White, the new Huntsman movie. It's just like there are so many great stories of male heroes out there. Like, why not do an Ashlad story? Why not do um, one of the one of these cool stories about male heroes. Why not do St. George and the Dragon? Um, All of them Chris Hemsworth. Uh, of, All of them can yeah. be Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, but then it's um, instead it's like let's just redo this and not even do the Snow Queen. Again, like they're getting out. Hollywood has gotten out of doing the Snow Queen so many times by doing stories really similar to and not the Snow Queen. And I think it's just lazy. I think it's just lazy writing. Well, but I don't hate it. I, well, I was going to say, I actually, I haven't seen the newest one, but I did see Snow White and the Huntsman, and I actually, I appreciated it. I thought it was a nice, interesting take that wasn't your typical, it wasn't what I was expecting. And I, and I I thought that it was a nice interpretation of it, and I thought also, I, I, I'm a sucker for for uh, cinematography, and it was beautifully shot, so. It is beautifully shot, and the um, costumes and the art direction's gorgeous. In terms of adaptations, though, the there's a 90s version of Snow White with um, Sam Neill and Sigourney Weaver that's way cooler um, with and um much more interesting in terms of adaptation it's very scary it's um are you talking about jurassic park are you talking about alien (laughs) (laughs) it's called like snow white i can't remember it's got some like subheading but it's like a horror film and sigourney weaver is the evil queen and it's dark and cool and um and yeah it's yeah the, the huntsman ones they're fine um it's just boring to yeah. me. <laughs> but I guess that brings us back to the question that I guess we can wrap it up with this. We're, this show is about rumors and about whether thing is something is like right or wrong. And this is a very interesting episode because can you really say that uh, interpretation of a fairy tale is right or wrong considering the – I mean how long down the line it goes through either folklore or, or oral tradition or once it gets put on paper. Is there any wrong way to interpret it afterwards considering that can be adaptive to the culture at hand or at the time? No, I don't think there is a wrong way. However, I think I think however you choose to tell the story is your way of having the story being told. I think you can be deliberately ignorant though, of where the story came from. And and this is particularly problematic if you are taking a story from a culture that is not your own and reappropriating it in your own culture very deliberately and not knowingly. So there's, you know, I have one of the problems I have with Frozen is that it takes all these 
beautiful images of Norwegian and Scandinavian culture without actually telling a Scandinavian story, you know, and, and it just picking the best bits and not even setting it in Norway, just setting it in this magical place. And it's like, that's really taking away from Norwegian culture. Why not tell a Norwegian story um, or just set it in a magical land? And it's, it's the fine line, I think, that, that you have to tread when um, telling stories that aren't from your own culture. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's less of a grey area when it's French or English because, you know, if you're white like me, um, it's pretty close to your own heritage, you know, and, you know, it's my ancestors are Italian and English. And so that's where that's, I feel can't find telling those stories, but I'm aware of, uh, of what I'm doing when I would say, maybe tell a South American story or an African story. I tell, I try and tell those with reference, reverence, you know, um, and reference to where they come from. And I think it's only problematic to, to reinterpret stories when you take away their original cultural context and insert your own. Yeah, I can get that type of bit. I mean, I, I definitely understand that. I realize that it is pretty obvious that it is in some sort of Scandinavian place in Frozen at that point, but they don't really get into any specifics about it. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, we actually talked about that beforehand. Like we were like, it was in Norway, right? And he said, and he was like, no, they didn't mention it. And I was like, oh, well, I, I thought but it it's was. set in a town called Arendelle, and there's a place in Norway called Arendelle. Okay, so it's it's thinly veiled, I guess, at the most part. But I mean, with in terms there of shouldn't folklore, be veiled at all is the real point. Um, there are some that are very nationalistic or cultural, you know. But then you have things like Cinderella, where some of their stories is just it's very multicultural in that sense. When you could almost set it in almost any one, they probably had their own version of it. If you were to extract the essence of that story, and I know there are some people that aren't forgivable, but if it's such a good story and you just need to be able to cater it to people who might be able to um, understand it from a different viewpoint, would you be able to consider that, um, I guess, okay in terms of folklore? Because it's really a way of being able to get that message to somebody in a way that they can understand. I guess. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Like obviously those stories, they belong to everyone and there are versions of Cinderella, like you say, all over the world. And there are versions of say the snow maiden, snow queen stories from all around places with Northern climates with, you know, and anywhere that there's an Island, there's a mermaid story, you know, anywhere there's a coast, there's a mermaid story. So no, those stories belong to everyone. Um, I guess the thing is that they were orally translated and they went slowly around the world and now we live in a very fast communicating world. So you have to be aware of where the stories came from in that respect. Well, I was going to say, I'm really curious to see, we'll talk in, uh, in six months, I want to know your opinion on Mona, the new Polynesian story that, that Disney's doing. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm curious about that too. Yeah, I just think, you know... I mean, what do you guys think as Americans? Would you like to see more stories actually set in America? Would you like to well, see Paul Bunyan something I was done by Disney? Bring up is like uh, Princess and the Frog. That's definitely. Not- I love that one. Yeah. But <laughs> as you can tell, it did not originate in like you know poor black New Orleans. It originated in what Prince and the Frog was from. I don't know, Claire. France. You might know this, but France. France. So yeah. same culture is just kind of exported over to America. I think it's a little bit different here because, um, I mean, it's a very big mix of things, and it's really hard to give that true viewpoint as an American because there's so many different types of 
American. But that's exciting, right? So doesn't that mean that you could maybe enjoy, I mean, uh, say in an Inuit story, you know, or wouldn't wouldn't that be exciting to you? Well, or, you know, some more Native them. American myths, you know? There are well, so many. Wouldn't they be beautiful Disney films? Yes, they would. I definitely agree on that. That would be uh, awesome to see more of it. It's just... Um, well, I can tell you what it is. I can t- I can tell you the problem. It's it's accessibility and marketing and money. That is that is the key factors right there. People need comfortable things in order to sell something. That's exactly it, and, and that's a problem. And, yeah. and 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 yeah, exactly. And, right- and so Disney keep making movies set in rural France. It's just like uh, I don't know. It's just a bit boring to me. Yeah. I- hopefully they'll change that. They've been. I-, I feel like Disney has been trying to make some progress, and they've caught. Um, a lot of flack from some more right-wing uh, groups just from even potentially having a gay couple in Frozen or something like that, you know? It's not potential. It's happened. Well, they didn't blatantly show it. They weren't like, these people are gay, you know, something like that. Well, which, you know, which is the way it should be. It should just be, it's a normal thing of life, and that's what you can deal with. And I think Disney is taking small steps to adapt people, maybe not as fast as some others wouldn't, but I really think that they are kind of, they have responsibility to bring kids to be in the forefront of what, culture should be yeah i agree but they also have a monopoly that's the other thing so they they really have a monopoly on animation they own almost every animated um company in the world in some way shape or form whether it's their distribution or on it so the thing is there isn't really necessary necessarily like a small animation company in america going let's tell an inuit fairy tale let's do a navajo story because as soon as they make something of quality disney will buy them out and then you get to the whole politics of representation when you do these things like you were saying earlier like how do you tell these other cultural tales like how do you not do violence to a narrative and like what is historical memory what like what qualifies as the true narrative and who gets a voice in that story and who has the rights to tell it it's like it's it's absolutely fascinating it's just a these are really big questions i think so too yeah yeah and i think i think I think, ironically, Disney actually used to do it better because they used to just set the whole thing in the country. They would reference the culture a lot more. And it's it's things like it it's like actually tang- Tangled is like just loosely kind of Europe and mm. the same thing with Frozen, just loosely kind of Norway. It's That's when you get it wrong. You have to, you have to go the whole hog and or it has to the, be universal. In like, almost an effort to avoid pinpointing it they've almost do more damage to the narrative i would say it's more of they're trying to make it accessible to as many people as possible but they lose some of the essence of it and the true roots of it in the process i think that might be one side of the coin however no i'm with you but that's what that's what pixar's great at i mean ratatouille i mean you there is no doubt in your mind that is 100 percent set in paris also original story yeah so. Yeah, and I mean, Brave. It's not my favorite film, but like, it's like let's that's, just go the whole hog and yeah. do Scotland. <laughs> yeah, no, that, but that's another great example. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I've, I've talked your ear off. No, ah, no, 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 no. Claire, thank you so much for joining us on this. Um, thank you, you for having have me. Pretty much uh, showing how much we know about these things, <laughs> which isn't a lot, not a lot at all. Uh, I, I think that this has been a very uh, refreshing breath of air for us because it we instead of having to be the um, the temporary scholars, we were allowed to be schooled by somebody else, and it, it's been wonderful. But uh, thank you so much. Uh, how can people reach you, or how can people listen to you on Singing Bones? We have a website which is Singing Bones Podcast or one word dot com. Um, we're also on iTunes. 
Podbean, Pocket Cast, all those little things. Um, we're also on SoundCloud. We have a Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter. And, yeah, you can find me in all those ways. Oh, so I can start serial <laughs> tweeting you too? Everybody else gets them from me. I'm big on the hashtag Folklore Thursday. That's a, it's a big thing for me. <laughs> I'll remember it. Well, we're, we'll definitely put all that in the show notes uh, for people that want to reach you. And we highly recommend yeah. checking out The Singing Bones. It's awesome. Yes. Thanks, guys. And as for us, Greg, you want to take over real quick for how they can contact us? Sure. Um, so you can uh, reach us. First off, YouTube. Keep subscribing. We're yes, almost please. Please. We are. We we uh we just released a ridiculous spice video. Well, I don't know when. The, I guess when this one drops, it'll be about a week. We can half out, but we dropped this video where you can watch us torture ourselves with spicy spicy foods. Josh and I eat whole habanero. Ryan, the psychopath that he is, eats a whole um, Carolina Reaper. If you don't know what that is, yeah, you'll find out. So. <laughs> It's um don't clickbait them. It's amazing. It's a hot pepper. It's a really hot pepper. So anyway, basically, uh, please uh check us out on YouTube. You can also um find us at rumorfliespodcast.com. You can email us at rumorflies at gmail.com at rumorflies on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook.com slash rumorflies. We are also on Google Plus, and you can find us anywhere where podcasts are hosted, such as iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. That was painful. Yeah, that was painful. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Uh, We'll see you next week. And I'm Ryan. I'm Josh. I'm the one who apparently does painful reads. I'm Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. This episode's closing song is Barbara Allen by The Great Park. His man down to the town To the place where she was staying He said, my master, he bids your company If your name is Barbara Allen So slowly, slowly she did get up To the place where he was lying But when she pulled the curtain back Said, young man, I declare you are dying He said, yes, I am very sick And I shall not get any better Unless I have the love of one The love of Barbara She said, but don't you remember not so long ago That night down in the tavern When you toasted all the other ladies there 
But you slighted Barbara Allen And he said, yes, yes, I remember it well That night down in the tavern When I toasted all the other ladies there But I gave my heart to Barbara Allen Then she looked to the west and she did see his pale corpse a-coming She said, set him down and won't you leave him a while So that I might look upon him But the more she looked, the more she mourned Until she fell from crying she said, I beg you now, take him away For my heart too now is dying She said, Father, Father, come dig me a grave And dig it deep, dig it narrow A sweet William died for me today And I'll die for him tomorrow They did bury him beside her And from his heart grew a red, red rose And from her heart grew a briar And they grew, they grew so very high Until they could grow no higher And was there they tied a lover's knot the red rose and the briar Well in Scarlet Town where I there was a fair maid dwelling And her name was known both far and near And they called her Bar. 